Y'all mind if I pray? We cool? We can pray in church, right? Okay. I don't know about you, but I, I got to fill big shoes this morning. <laughs> it's not easy to follow. It's not easy to follow Brad. If it's your first time, um, come back next week, all right, and see how this really gets done, all right? But for this morning, I'm going to try my really hard, but I need the Holy Spirit to, to give me stuff. So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that your words would be spoken this morning, that your truth would find its way into every, every nook and cranny, every crevice of the hearts of men and women in this room today. Father God, that they would leave this place if they know nothing else, God, that they would know that they are loved, that they are cherished, that they were bought for, they were bought and paid for with a price, God, because they have value and because you love them. So, Father, right now, open minds, open hearts, the Spirit of God, have your way in this place to do only what you can do. In Jesus' name. Everyone said together. Amen. We are, we are in part five. Everyone say part five. I was weak. Everybody say part five of this series called Repeat. And I love it because as New Covenant believers, sometimes we have this tendency to go, well, Old Testament stuff, eh, we're in the New Testament. But I cannot tell you right now that the Old Testament is chock full of hints of what's to come. I read the Old Testament to see types and shadows of what's going to happen. If you've ever seen a movie with a surprise ending, I remember the first time I watched The Sixth Sense, okay, and I'm not advocating for a movie, but this is the one that in my mind was the one that had the biggest surprise ending, all right? And I watched that movie, and the ending came, and it was like, and I went, oh, my, how did I miss that? And then I immediately went back and watched it again. And then as I'm watching it again, I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did I miss that? How did I miss that? How did I miss that? How in the world did I miss that? It's so obvious. You know what? The people in Jesus' time had Jesus, the Messiah, standing right in front of them. Every hint they could have had for thousands of years in Scripture and prophecy, the man who personified all those things standing right there in front of them. And they went, uh, no, we don't get it. We don't get it. What? What? And then later on, they were like, ugh, he was right there. How did we miss this? So the Old Testament is full of this thing. This thing that we're going to look at today is this idea that we are justified. We are made right with Jesus Christ simply by believing. And if you think that's a new covenant concept, let me take you back all the way to Genesis, okay? First book of the Bible, our scripture today is Genesis fifteen six. Before Abraham even got called Abraham, the Bible says that Abram believed in the Lord and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. That's a hard word to say, credited Credited it to him. He put it on his account. He counted him righteous by his faith. He counted him righteous because he believed. Good works came out of that belief, okay? Things that he did in response to his belief. But he wasn't counted righteous because he went when God said to go. He wasn't counted righteous because he, you know, he, he, hung, he held the knife over his son Isaac. The belief came first. And the action came later. So why does this get repeated? There are four specific times when this exact verse is repeated in the New Testament. But there are nearly 200 times in the New Testament where we are told in some form or fashion that we are made right with God through faith. That we are made right with God, not because of what we've done. And that we've made right with God based on the work of Jesus Christ and Him alone so that we got nothing to boast about. I don't get to stand before you today and say, man, I'm made right with God because <laughs> I'm just a really sharp dresser, as you can tell. I'm not made right with God simply because of this fabulous head of hair. I'm not made right with God because of this awesome youth pastor goatee that apparently is obligatory for all youth pastors. I'm not made right with God because of that. I'm made right with God in spite of that. I'm made right with God because Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to endure the shame of the cross for me and to complete the work I could have never completed on my own. The good news here today is you can't do it. And that's okay. You don't have to do it. The pressure should come off. You don't have to. Christ already accomplished 
what he wanted to accomplish. And our job is to rest in that. So let's look. Why does this get repeated so often? I think first and foremost, it's fundamental. This is the gospel, guys. If you've heard something else in other churches, I'm sorry, you haven't heard the gospel. I apologize to be that blunt. But if you have not heard the message that Jesus Christ gave himself for you and that the work to be made right has already been done, if you've been fed some line about how you've got to serve and act and be and behave and do in order to get God's favor upon you, then you have not heard the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is freedom. It's liberty. It is not bondage. So it gets repeated, though, because, number one, it's fundamental. Number two, we have this really bad tendency as people to go, eh, that sounds great, but... I told him I wasn't going to use this line, but Krista gets away with stuff like this, so I'll do it. If we had a theme song as humanity, it would be, I like big butts. Because for every single truth of the gospel, we got a big butt that comes right after it. I know I'm made right with God, but I still got to behave this way. I know I'm made right with God. I know I've been forgiven, but. I know the law has been set aside, but. There is no but. Stop putting a but where God put a comma or a period. There is no but. You are made right, period. You are loved, period. It is accomplished, period. Stop putting punctuation where there is no punctuation. Amen? So it gets repeated. And I, I was talking to one of our kids at camp, and, and she's a self-proclaimed skeptic. If she's here today, I'm not calling her out. That's all right. She's skeptical. She's got questions. And one of her biggest questions was, there's a lot of religions out there. I believe in God. I do. I do. But how do I know that's the right one? How do I know that's the right way? And I, and I don't even... The only thing I could think to say was, if I was to sit down as a human being and devise a plan for my own redemption, it would not look like this. I don't think man could have dreamed this scheme up because every other world religion teaches something completely different. You are scum. If you behave and walk this way and jump through these hoops and accomplish these things and check these marks off and you do these things... Maybe, just maybe, just maybe God will overlook your scumminess and maybe let you in. But there's no assurance. There's no peace. There's no nothing. It's all on you. The onus is completely on your shoulders and the burden is on you. And it's exhausting. I know Christians that behave like this right now. They got the truth of the gospel, but man, somehow they still feel like it's on them. And they are tired. And they are beat down. And they are beat up. And some of them, if it gets bad enough, just walk away from church altogether. Guys... The truth of the gospel is so much better. There is peace. There is joy. So if we're not careful, what we do is we take this truth of the gospel and we turn it into some convoluted behavior modification system. And we focus so much on the outward and neglect the inward, we become the Pharisees. We become what Jesus called whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You know, full of the, you know, the, this, the, having the appearance of righteousness, but denying the power of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. So we're going to look right now at the first point. It uh, should be up on the screen. That the route to righteousness has always been belief. This is not a New Testament thing, guys. It started all the way back with Abraham way before Moses showed up with the Ten Commandments. Abraham was counted righteous based on his belief. Romans 4, 1 through 5 tells us, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. Therefore, the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Listen, if this was a based on works thing, then Jesus would have just been giving us what we're due. I worked and I worked and I worked and where are my wages at? 
That's not the way this works, right? First of all, I could never tip the balance enough. I can never make up for the bad. You know, if, if, if you're here, sitting here this morning and you think you could do enough good to outweigh the bad, whew, I, I hate to rain on your parade, but it's just not possible. So go ahead, work, 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 work. At the end of the day, expect your check. But to the one who works and gets paid, that's not a gift, is it? When my kids get up on Christmas morning and they open their presents and they go, Woo, thanks, Dad, for this iPod. What do I owe you? <laughs> well, hang on a second. That was on sale. Lucky for you. Clickety, clickety, clickety. There was sales tax, though. I apologize for that. Um, listen, uh, I know you don't have any money, but I would be happy to let you work this off for the next five years. Thanks for the gift, Dad. It's the worst gift ever. I'd be the worst father. I'd call CPS right now. Take my kids from me. I love giving my kids stuff. I can't tell you how much it makes me smile to see them smile. Can I tell you something this morning? Your heavenly father is such a much better father than I am. He loves to give his children gifts. And he's never going to hold it over your head. And he's never going to give you a receipt and say, well, you know, I know you appreciate that grace. It wasn't on sale this week. It was full price. Let me tell you something. It cost him a lot. But, man, he gave it because he loves you. Look at Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. But there's part two, isn't there? And that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Listen, we're being asked not to just mentally assent to the fact that God exists. But we're being asked to believe something about his character, aren't we? God is here and God is good. God is here and God loves me. God is here and he wants to bless me. You can't have one without the other. The demons believe in Jesus. The Bible says so in James that the, you, know, you believe in God. Whoop-de-doo, so do the demons. And they got enough sense to be scared. But we are called to believe in him and about him. That he's there and that he loves us. Amen? That's good stuff. That's good. Someone ought to give a shout about that. That's awesome. Woo! He loves me. But what about, what about John 6, 28? Just in case you think these are just Paul's words, look at what Jesus says. They asked him, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus said, he could have said anything in this moment, y'all. Could have said anything he wanted to. The work of, you should keep all the commandments. That you should do, you should be. No, look what he says. He said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's your work. Boom, it starts there. Are works unimportant? No, of course. We're supposed to do. I mean, faith without works is dead. We, we hear in James, right? So there's a, there's a requirement or a calling at least that's out of this place of belief I should respond. But I don't respond in order to arrive with Christ. I don't respond in order to turn his face towards me so he'll shine upon me. That's not why I do it. I do it because he already did it. If I love anybody at all, it's because he first loved me. Right? If I do anything good at all, it's out of a belief that, that he's loved me so much that I can't help but love other people. He's forgiven me so much. How could I not forgive other people? I've not had anything held against me by him. How can I hold a grudge against my brother when I know what's been done for me? That's the belief. So the converse of this, that, that the route to righteousness is, uh, is belief. Look at this, though. The second point is this. The root of all sin is unbelief. That's it, guys. Listen, when, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming uh, in, uh, in John 16, I'm skipping a verse, I'll go back to the other one, but uh, in John 16, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of sin, let's read this together. Uh, John 16, 8, 11. And when he comes, he will convict. This is he, the Holy Spirit, okay? He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. 
But look at how he clarifies. Lots of people stop right there. Woo, that Holy Spirit's going to come get you. He's going to convict you. He's going to beat you up and tell you that judgment is coming. And they're like, ah. Oh. Again, you got to read the whole verse, guys. It's really, really cool. Look at this one. It says, uh, the world's sin is what? That it refuses to believe in me. That's it. The thing that the Holy Spirit's concerned with, first and foremost, is your belief. Because, man, I tell you right now, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And the Bible says you were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your unbelief. You couldn't even see what you were supposed to see. Forget all the other stuff, okay? Forget the alcohol, forget the drugs, forget the sex, forget the pornography, forget the... Rattle off your list of stuff that you think God's holding against you. Unbelief is the root of all that stuff. These are the symptoms. This is the cause. We deal with this, and we cut the head off the snake, and all the other stuff. <laughs> Power of the Holy Spirit just starts dealing with that stuff. But it's all the outward. Look, the, 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 the world's sin is that I, it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. So he's saying, listen, I'm going to convict the world that their, their sin is unbelief. I'm going to convict them or convince them that they're righteous because I'm going to the Father to intercede for them. I'm, I've accomplished what I've came to accomplish. And the third thing about judgment, it's not you getting judged. Look at this. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Not because Russ Collins has been condemned. Not because Nat Turney has been condemned. Not because put your name in there. No. The ruler of this world now stands judged. And judgment's coming. But man, if you're in Christ, that's not for you. Don't take that on yourself. That's for the devil. And he's going to get his. Trust me. All right? But look at this. In the very, very beginning, when the devil tried to tempt Adam and Eve to sin, he attacked their belief, didn't he? Look at uh, Genesis 3.1. Okay? We're, we're barely into this story, this God story of man and, and how he created us. And we're just barely into this thing. And here comes the devil. And he knows, because he's not dumb, that if he can get us off of some belief, if he can get us to believe something incorrect about God, well, then guess what? Stuff will follow. So Genesis 3, 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And he starts her down this place where she starts to question what God said. She starts to question God's motives. He's like, Well, he's just trying to keep stuff from you. He's just trying to keep you from being like him. He doesn't want you to have what you're supposed to have. You know, and all of a sudden, there's Eve going, you know, I never thought about it like that. I want to be like God. I want to know good from bad. I want to know right from wrong. I don't, I, and she begins to doubt the goodness of her God. Now, Eve, who got to walk with God in the garden every day, could doubt. How much more so can we doubt? How much more so if we're not full of the word, if we're not full of what the Bible says about us, how much more easily can we become ensnared by the words of the enemy that come along and say, yeah, you're forgiven, but man, that thing you did last week is really bad. Yeah, I know you, I know, I know, I know, I know you're forgiven, but man, you were divorced. God can't use you. You can't be in ministry. You know, you have, you, you, you're an alcoholic. You're Man, put your thing, whatever, insert that thing in there. Whatever lie the enemy would tell you that would disqualify you from the kingdom because of this thing is a lie. Yeah. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And if he can get you to believe it, though, guess what? He can get you off track. He's not going to take you out of God's hand. The Bible says that can't happen. But guess what he can do? He can reduce your effectiveness here on planet Earth. And he can get you off your assignment. And he can get you off doing other stuff and worried about other things. And he's like, okay, I got that guy taken care of. I'll go work on somebody else for a while. Man. It is just unbelievable how much our belief system plays. I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, that a person will not act in a consistent way 
in a way that's inconsistent with what they feel about themselves and what they believe to be true about themselves. So if, the, if in the pit of your stomach, in the deepest part of your heart, you believe that you are the righteousness of God in Christ, guess what's going to happen? You're going to behave in a way that's consistent with that identity. However, if the mantra in your brain and in your head is over and over and over again, I'm just a dirty sinner, Whew, I'm just a worm, just saved by grace, I'm just a dirty, and you're repeating that thing, and then you wonder why, you know, you kind of drift back to these things, your identity has to be firmly rooted in Christ, or we're going to have issues. Amen? So listen, we're made right with God. We're justified with God simply by believing in Him. And this settles our eternity, guys. This is it. The issue of life and death has been handled, okay? But what we believe about Him will really determine how we live out our salvation on the earth. When the Bible talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's what He means. How are we going to live this out? You're saved. Now what's this look like on the other side of the cross? How are we going to work this out for ourselves? If we want to be victorious, we've got to have faith in a few things. And I'm not, these aren't, this is not a, a complete list, but I made a few lists of things I think are important for us to cling to. Amen? Can we do this real quick? The first thing is this. If you've got your little fill in the blanks, this would be the first blank. The completeness of the cross. Everybody say completeness of the cross. I'm telling you what, when Jesus said it's finished, there was nothing after that. It is finished. John 19, 28 through 30 tells us this. Look, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is still on the cross, guys, and it's, he, he knows it's, about to, it's finished. Jesus said, I'm thirsty, and a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they, t- they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a staff. Uh, anyway, of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What was finished? The work that he was sent to accomplish was done in that moment. That means for you and me, the work is done. It's accomplished. It's finished. The onus, the responsibility, the burden of our salvation is not ours. It was Christ in the beginning, and he took care of it. He finished it. But I tell you what, if we don't get that firmly settled in our minds and we will spend a lifetime trying to earn what can't be earned worried about unearning what can't be unearned a gift is a gift and it's been given the grace of god this word in greek is the word charis and it means gift it's freely given unmerited undeserved favor of god in the book of hebrews chapter 10 11 through 13 paul kind of clarifies a little more what this means for us look at this Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, this priest, by the way, is Jesus, okay? He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. What is the significance of, of, of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father? used to kind of bug me. I'm like, what's this? Okay. Every, every time I hear this, God is, you know, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I did some digging and I've done some research. And the thing is this, Levitical priests, okay, priests in the tribe of Levi, in the, in the, in the, in the order of Aaron, when they were ministering in the Holy of Holies, when they were in the presence of God, they couldn't sit. They never sat. There was work to be done. They were offering sacrifices continually. They were praying continually. There was work to be done on behalf of the people. And the priest was there as the intermediary between the people and God. And he was constantly interceding for his people. Killing the goats, killing the bulls, whatever he was supposed to do. And there was no furniture. If you, go to, if you were to go into the Holy of Holies, there's no sitting. There's no chair. There's no place to sit. All right? So the significance of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father cannot be understated. It means 
He sat down. Why? Because it's done. I made one sacrifice, Jesus says, and I made it one time, and I made it for all time and for all men and women. And now I can sit. And I, I turn the rest of this over to you guys to walk this out and live in the reality of the fact that you're forgiven. You know, if I, I think if God had one thing to tell his church today, it would be, you know, chill. Seriously. Ser- I've done all this work, and you're still running around like a bunch of chickens with your heads cut off trying to earn what you can't earn. And worried that you're going to unearn what I won't take away from you. Man, relax. Rest in the completeness of the cross, in the fullness of what Christ has done for you. Amen? The second thing we've got to remember is the permanence. We have to believe in the permanence of his presence. There's an Old Testament thing that kind of runs around and through our brains still that says, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, David sang a psalm about it, wrote a psalm, right? Created me a clean heart, God, and renew your right spirit within me. Please don't take away your Holy Spirit. That was a valid prayer in the Old Testament. You know, there were times when Israel, you know, displeased God and God removed his presence from them. There was a place where the physical presence of God resided in the temple, and most Jews never saw that. One priest, one time a year, got to go into the Holy of Holies and minister to, and be in the presence of God. So there's a place for that. But guess what? New Testament, God made a new deal with us. The Bible says we got a new, promise, or a new covenant based on better promises. And one of those promises is he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's always with us. There's the permanence of his presence in our lives. Look at John 14, 16. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. That's the Holy Spirit, who will never leave you. So we have a Holy Spirit who resides in us, who is with us, and there's a constant presence in our lives. The Bible says that his job is to lead us into all truth, right? There's things that that Jesus wanted to tell his followers in the day, and he said, I've got so many more things to tell you, but you, you can't take it. You can't bear it. The Holy Spirit will come, though, and he'll lead you into all truth. That's a lot of truth, man. If you want truth this morning, guess where the source of all that truth is? The Holy Spirit. God promised him to you. Jesus said, I'm going to send him to you. And he's going to be your personal teacher and your personal tutor. And if you will listen and tune yourself into his voice, you will always know the right thing to do. You don't need a list of rules, guys. You don't need things etched on stone. You don't need the Ten Commandments telling you, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. I already got the, I got the, the commandments etched in my heart that says I've got to love God and love people. The rest of that stuff is just window dressing. But the Holy Spirit will speak to you, guide you, lead you into all truth. I love that. That's so cool. Look at Hebrews 13, 5. It says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That quote is an Old Testament quote. It comes from Deuteronomy. Okay, so this God that wants to be with us, this God that moved heaven and earth, this God who, who did not hesitate to put his own son on the cross to have a presence with us. This is the God that now lives inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that, that's exciting, man. I can't get enough of this. I can't talk about it enough. I can't tell enough people about it. I just I can't escape the reality of it, that God loved me so much that he gave me himself as a permanent reminder, a permanent presence in my life, and that's amazing. The third thing I want you to write down is this. Um, we have to believe in the constancy or the consistency of his character. The constancy of his character. Because there is this prevailing thought, even among some Bible-believing Christians, okay, that mm, God is sometimes happy with me and sometimes mad at me. That he's sometimes good and he sometimes he takes away. You know, Job was the guy who said that mess, by the way, about the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. All right? And then he gets rebuked later on for having said it. 
Right? And yet somehow it finds its way into some of our worship songs. And like, he gives and takes away. Really? My, my God. I mean, he maybe take away some bad stuff from you. All right, maybe he's going to take away. Maybe that's why we need to sing that verse. Is he gives and then he takes away junk. He gives me life and he takes away sin. Great, that's cool. But I think the way most people hear that is, is that my God is this capricious, fickle, roller coastery kind of guy. And sometimes he gives stuff. Then he goes, whoop. Oh, why did I lose my best friend? Well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. No, man, good God, bad devil. Can we get that wrapped up, right? Good God, bad devil. God is not the author of sickness and death. He's a good God all the time, and all the time he's good. We say this sometimes, and it becomes so cliche that we, that we oh, man, we miss the realness of this. We miss the reality of the fact that our God is good, and every single thing he does for you is for your good. And if that wasn't enough, even the stuff the enemy does to you that's bad, he can twist it around and make it good. Don't confuse God turning bad into good with God causing bad. It's not the same thing. But I tell you what, if you're sitting here this morning and there's something in your past that's not good, the only thing that's going to make it right is Jesus. The only thing that's going to turn that thing around and let you have victory in the face of defeat is Jesus. But don't get that confused with my God being the guy that gave you cancer so you might get closer to God. Really? I'm sorry. I'm going to throw the flag on that one and be like, I don't think so. Not the way I read my scriptures. Not the way I have experienced my God personally. Man, bad stuff happens, guys. We live in a fallen world, now, and it breaks my heart to see bad things happen. But it breaks my heart even more to see God get blamed for that. He can turn it around. He can make it work for his good. But he didn't make it happen. Amen? He's good. Psalm 107.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a promise you can stand on. That's a promise you can hold to and cling to, even when things are rotten. Even when the circumstances of your life look bleak, the reality is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, this difference between truth sometimes and reality, you know, this thing we experience and then this truth I know of God is a place of faith, right? It's a place of faith. If I believe that God is good, then I can stand in the midst of my storm and proclaim I'm healed, even if in reality, even if in whatever, and my experience is not caught up with my faith yet. My faith can't be shaken. If I've been diagnosed with cancer, I'm going to stand here today and tell you I'm healed until, they, until Jesus comes and gets me. And if that doesn't happen, then that's all right, because you know what? My God's still good, and it's not dependent upon what he does for me. It's just his character. It's just who he is. Guys, we can proclaim good things about Jesus in the face of what seems to be reality Based on what we believe and our faith in Christ. But we have to know that we 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 know that he's good and that he loves us. The fourth thing I want you to write down real quick is this. The, you have to have faith in the truth of your transformation. In the truth of your transformation. We had a, a, an experience at camp, you know, and uh, several kids got saved. It was great. Gave their lives to Christ for the first time. Y'all can give it up for that. That's good. But immediately, we started talking, all right? You're going to wake up tomorrow, and the reality is this. You've been saved. You know, the eternity issue has been settled. You've been translated from dark to light. But there's going to be some stuff that you still need to work out to make the outside match the inside. And I don't want you waking up tomorrow morning and having some weird thought and going, man, I thought I was saved. Why did I think that? <sighs> Must not have been real. And the enemy's real quick. He's not dumb again, okay? He ain't the brightest guy in the world, but he ain't dumb neither, all right? 
So he liked to come in at those opportune times and say, man, if you were really saved, you wouldn't have looked at that. You know, the reality is this. We are saved. The transformation has been complete. Either either the Bible is true or it's not. When it says that those who are in Christ are new creations, that old things have passed away and all things have been made new. Either that's true or we're wasting our time in this room. It's either true or it's not. So we have to stand on the truth of that and say, yeah, I buy it. I believe it. I got it. Even though sometimes I act in a way that's out of, out of line with that reality. Sin is simply that, guys. And the reason that there's a tension and that the reason that we, we feel a certain way is that the Holy Spirit's not going to let us rest in a place where we behave in a way that's outside of who we are in Christ. It's not him wagging his finger at you. It's not him telling you you're bad and you're rotten and how dare you. It's him saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me convince you of something. You're a righteous son or daughter of God. And righteous sons and daughters of God don't do that. That brings death. All right? Uh, come over here. And it's a gentle nudging. And it's a, don't do this. This choice is going to bring death. This choice is life. Choose this one instead. It's never shame. It's never condemnation. Correction? Yeah, absolutely. We should act in a way that's consistent with who we are. And as long as there's that tension, you know, we're working stuff out. Some people would call this sanctification. It takes a lifetime, right? I heard one guy say once that you're saved once, but not all at once. You know, like, like this transformation, this, this, this reality of having eternity settled is cool. And then we spend a lifetime working out what that means for us, you know, and, and, and chipping off the edges. And we don't do that. That's not even our work to do. It's the Holy Spirit's job. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. I'm here to tell you guys, there's a, if there's a more powerful truth in the scripture, I don't know what it is. But the fact that you said yes to Jesus, the fact that you believed on his name, that you believe these things, the, the faith that you have placed in him makes that transformation complete. All right, we're good. All things have passed away. The old man has been crucified, and there's a new person that rises up inside of you and begins to take shape. But we get so hung up on the outward stuff that we start to wonder, well, was that real? Was that real? And our faith has to be placed in the fact that it is true. The truth of our transformation, it's been complete. The last place is this, and I want to land here. We've got to close it down. The reality of your redemption. The reality of your redemption. We spent a week at camp with these kids, and I loved it because I had kind of talked about or written some of this stuff before we went to camp, and we go to camp, and this is the theme of camp was redemption. And I like this. I'm going to spend a couple minutes, and then we're going to, we're going to close this down. But listen, redemption, what does it mean to be redeemed? There is an original plan that God had for mankind. All right. And when God made you, the Bible says he said not that it's good, but that it's very good. He made man and he made woman. He put them in the garden. He said, man, this is good. This is like the best I've done. This is awesome. You had worth. And then sin. Right. So sin enters the picture and suddenly, boom, we've fallen. We got this issue now. And there's this we don't have this worth anymore. And we're just another one of God's creations. It seems like we're just sort of kicking it, hanging out. Jesus came to redeem so we deem something at a certain place and then we fell and then jesus came to say no 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 no. i'm gonna redeem i'm gonna put that value back so listen the work of jesus christ was to buy you back the word redeem means to purchase or buy back or ransom like you were taken hostage and, and jesus paid the ransom for you the simplest way to say this is this what is something worth intrinsically it's worth what somebody will pay for it, isn't it? I've seen people buy crazy stuff, man. I don't know how they, how in the world is a Pokemon card worth like 10,000 bucks? 
Really? I think they're ridiculous. You know why? Because somebody will pay it. And as long as it's worth it, as long as somebody will shell out the cash, suddenly the value of that thing, this baseball card, this, this, I don't know, I've seen people shell out money for ideas. They weren't even real things. It was just this, you know, the whole dot-com boom was money shelled out on what? Blue sky and promises, really? I should have got some of that. It was nothing. But the value of that thing was based upon what somebody was willing to pay for it. Can I tell you something this morning? Jesus paid everything for you. He laid it all on the line for you. What does that tell you? You are worth everything to him. It's as though he looked at mankind and he said, I would rather die than be without you. Let that settle in your heart today. We're going we're gonna to have the band come up here for a second. And I have this song that I really want you guys to hear. But while we're doing this, here's what I'd like you to do. Just, just, just listen to the words. Let the truth of this thing roll over you as we read Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. Look at this. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Guys, just like highway signs get repeated every few miles, right, to remind us of which way to go, these truths get repeated and repeated and repeated because... So important that we remember, that we rest in the fact that Jesus loves us and that we've been bought and paid for and our redemption is complete. There's nothing left for you to do. Amen?
heavy chains Wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be Because I don't have to be The old man inside of me Cause his day is long Dead and gone Because I've got a new name A new life I'm not the same And I hope that will carry me home Shake off these heavy chains Wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be Singing I am redeemed Yes, Lord Yes, let me free So I'll shake off these heavy chains Wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be I'm not Lord, I'm not who I used to be. Jesus, I'm not who I used to be. Cause I am redeemed. I'm redeemed. At this time, just he's going to keep playing for a second. Listen, if you need this, if this is something, if what we're talking about sounds like good news to you, I got, I got to tell you, it is good news. And if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, man, there's no better day than right now, right here. But for that matter, too, if you're here today and you're not experiencing the freedom that you ought to experience in Christ, if you look at what the Scripture says about you and how you should live and you go, man, that's not my life. We can change that today. But it starts with you believing those things we talked about. That God is good all the time. Our faith in Him shapes how we behave. It shapes the way we experience His grace. It shapes the way that we live our lives. So today, if, if you would, just close your eyes. If you need to make that first decision, if you need to say yes to Jesus, would you just lift your hand up? Would you just make eye contact with me or something? He's calling right now. Amen. He wants to make that connection with you today. But also, if you're here today and, and there's, there's an area of your life where maybe there's been unbelief that crept in. And maybe you've allowed the voice of the enemy to kind of crowd out the voice of, of God in your life. And you've believed something about yourself that's untrue. And let's make a commitment today. Let's make a commitment today to change that. Because I'm telling you right now, the life of every Christian should be one of victory. The life of every Christian should be one of joy and it should not be dependent upon our circumstances and the things that the world would throw at us. No, it should be dependent.